Albert Einstein once said that all religions, arts and sciences are branches of the same tree. As today's technology and global risks race ahead of our understanding and stretch the boundaries of humanity, we face unprecedented ethical conundrums. I believe that reaching beyond the sciences and religion to that third branch, the arts, offers essential insight into these challenges. I call ethical decision-making on the borders of humanity, ethics on the edge. We all teeter on the edge. How do we define a life well-lived in a partly virtual world? Where do we look for moral guidelines and truth when curated selves befriend each other through algorithms? How do we make conscionable decisions in the uncharted territory of civilian space travel, designer genetics, and artificial intelligence? And what about the problems that are still on the ethical edge, but shouldn't be, such as inequality or racism? Please join me in conversation with some of the world's leading artists and arts world pioneers as we explore some of today's most challenging ethical questions through the lens of the visual and performing arts, architecture, and literature. Janet, thank you so much for having me. It's truly an honor to be here. And it was such a pleasure to have the privilege of watching some of your rehearsal of Clytemnestra. Before we start with some of the ethics-focused questions, could you take us back a bit? You are widely touted as Martha's protege. Tell us a little bit about that. I understand that you have danced most, if not all, of Martha's classics and that there were actually works done just for you. And now you're the bridge from the legacy to the future. So could you just tell us a little bit about your personal relationship with Martha and your story, and then we'll get into some of the more ethics-focused questions. Sure. Well, I was taken into the Graham Company while I was a student at Juilliard, and some of Martha's top dancers were teachers there. And Martha was quite ill and not expected to live. This was in the early 1970s. Um, so her company was trying to figure out what to do without Martha, a problem that has haunted us for a while. So they started an apprentice program to try to document as many of the Graham works as they could. And I was taken into that. And at the end of that program, Martha was back in the studio. And a small tour was planned, and I was taken into the company. In the course of the next year or so, she began choreographing again. I was just kind of this tall, long-legged, innocent Midwestern kid. I had to step into a role I was understudying in her Medea ballet as in the role of the chorus. And afterwards, she came backstage to me. I'd been in the company about a year and said, you've been hiding from me. And I said, no, no, I, I, I don't think so. And she <laughs> said, well, I saw it tonight. From then on, we worked closely together and she choreographed new works for me and she directed me in some of her most marvelous roles. It was life-changing. I think everybody says that, but I have so many stories you just tell me to stop. But one of the first things she said to me when I was in the company was that I had to get my head on straight. And she was meaning literally. I had sort of a default position that was sort of a tipped head so the light could catch the cheekbones. Uh, and sort of a balletic. Sort of a balletic, you know, this is how we stand beautifully on stage. She recognized immediately that it was a default position for me, that it, it had no meaning, no intention. It was automatic pilot. And she wanted me to get my head on my shoulders 
and understand the power of my spine and the power of who I was and be direct and focused and uh, you know that's a life lesson get your head on straight get your head on straight is a life lesson and uh, working with intention yes is a life lesson mm -hmm. so with that and in fact that is a perfect segue to my first question which is how influential do you think the arts are whether it's dance or literature architecture in influencing the ethics of our day or of their day and of future generations? You know, I, I just think they're inseparable. I mean, the arts are the ethics. Um, they are the soul of man, as Martha said on many occasions. And they ask us to uh, examine our lives and relate to themes that are larger than our day-to-day -day activities, themes that uh, other humans, regardless of what country they live in or what culture they belong to or what religion they belong to or what their profession is are all um, accessing or should be sort of the essence of her theater really. She was trying to strip things down to those common elements of being human. Mm -hmm. And for her was it very much through first of all the human body mm -hmm. and how it moves and how it expresses itself and expresses ideas, mm -hmm. but also this idea of bridging cultures and bridging across religions is so fundamental today. Mm -hmm. uh, and would you say that it's still the case of for the Martha Graham Company today in your school, that it's very much, that the starting point is very much the human body? Absolutely. I mean, that, that is the starting point. <laughs> and Martha, of course, began very personally to discover her language on her own body going away from a style of dancing that was very decorative, very entertaining, very escapist. Mm -hmm. And what she wanted to represent was the human condition and human emotions. So she started to study us, watch how we hold our bodies when we laugh, when we cry, when we're depressed, and began to borrow body language and theatricalize it mm -hmm. so that audiences would recognize themselves on stage. It wasn't going to be kings and queens and swans and flowers and exotica and, you know, it was going to be the issues of being a human being. I find it fascinating that that is the connector, that bringing it down to the human body, undecorated as you say, mm -hmm. is something that it doesn't matter what country you're from, it doesn't matter what your religious tradition is, we all have certain fundamental, even biologies yes. and physiologies, mm -hmm. in order to be able to share discussion in a way about some of the ethical issues of the day, we do need to find that commonality and it's so interesting that it's through the body here. Right. Um, what ethical responsibility, if any, do you think individual artists have? Do you think the responsibility is to create a work or to execute a work or do you think that there's a greater ethical responsibility? And I think I remember reading something in the research, a comment of yours about choice and responsibility of the individual artist and that you keep that sense of choice and how one assumes responsibility in mind as you direct the company. Mm -hmm. um, but, but what do you think about the individual artist? Oh wow, <laughs> about eight answers came yes. through my mind. Um, we have time for all eight. <laughs> okay. The individual artist is responsible in so many different ways. I mean, again, returning to Martha Graham, she not only created art that would express self-empowerment, sort of responsibility to the social good, which she did 
always. But she did things like refusing Hitler's invitation to go to the Olympic Games in Berlin. She refused to dance a performance in Atlanta. She was at a, a college. They were not going to sell tickets to the black students. She said, well, then cancel the concert. Did she get any pushback on those? No, not on those sort of social issues. But she got pushback um, from a couple of Congress people when she was going to take her ballet Phaedra overseas because they thought it was pornographic. They thought Phaedra was pornographic. She, they thought it was pornographic. Martha, as she, one of her great innovations is that she began to choreograph the mind. So she would take the audience inside her lead character's mind rather than just acting out a story chronologically. And in her ballet Phaedra, the lie that Phaedra tells her husband is that she's been raped by her stepson. And we see the lie acted out in the mind of Phaedra. So there is abstract rape right. <laughs> in Martha's style enacted on the stage. And Martha's costumes, she was uh, reverential about the human body. And the men in particular in her dances wear very little. The women often are in more clothes, but they're fitted so that the, the torso, which is really the most descriptive part of Graham's language, is um, very easy to, to read. It's not so in that in day. Fabric. In that day. That was quite something. Yeah, that was quite yeah. revealing. Right. Uh, I interrupted you, and you said you had about eight thoughts on my question right. about responsibility in the artist, so I'll let you continue. Well, about your, your question about choice. Mm -hmm. Choice is the artist's most powerful tool. It's about Martha telling me to get my head on straight. Mm -hmm. I was not making a choice. Mm -hmm. I was on automatic pilot. So the, the fine-grained decision of a dancer in the Graham Company who is learning a new role, how they pour themselves into it, what choices they make that will be most powerfully represent themselves within the role to the audience. That's an interpretive artist's choice of a creative artist is Michelangelo. It's not what you chip away, it's what you leave. And deciding, not doing a movement just because it's cool and beautiful, but doing a movement because it relates to the structure of the piece that you've designed. Martha would often, when I was working with her, one ballet in particular, she got about four to five minutes of something done with the full group and there was a big set on stage and there were people going up and down and over and she came in the next day and threw it all out. And she said, it's very effective. It didn't mean what she wanted it to mean. She hadn't made the right choice. So she was really deeply committed to meaning and to making choices through her art in order to express that meaning. It again came down to her desire for a simplicity. I mean, it's, it's the modernist movement. Martha was a leader in the modernist movement. And, and one of the signs of that movement was stripping things down to their essentials, to abstract things. Martha would say, when asked if her work was abstract, she would say, well, only if you think of a, a drop of orange juice as an abstraction of the orange. She okay. wanted the smallest amount possible that would evoke the whole. So in that paring down, that distilling, that stripping away, choice is your most important tool. So that you don't have just something that's effective but meaningless. I find that fascinating because if you know, people talk about ethics as abstract, Mm -hmm. And my own way of talking about ethics is how one makes decisions. When you talk about the essence, it's to start with one's principles. Yes. Uh, it's how well we look at the consequences over time. So we're not making decisions just in the short term, but short, medium, and long term. But I think this idea of making things real and concrete 
and relevant to real life mm -hmm. uh, and, not, and not just abstract um, through choice mm -hmm. is very much a fundamental of ethics irrespective of the art that's expressing it. Right. And speaking of essence, can, can I just interrupt because you're reminding me of one of Martha's greatest ballets, which is Night Journey. It's based oh. on the Oedipus story, mm -hmm. of course. And Oedipus and Jocasta, of course, did not examine what their choices right. were going to mean in, in the future, even though they were being guided by Tiresias, the, the prophet who told them they were making a big mistake. It was, it was a, a life unexamined and therefore lived unethically, immorally, or... I've read a lot about that piece and it's the first time I've heard that link. So to come back to your word essence, or the, the drop of orange juice, so to speak, mm -hmm. uh, the, the essence of much ethical decision-making is, is principles, sort of the guiding moral principles, mm -hmm. um, the, the, the true north. Mm -hmm. So where do you look for your true north? Is it uh, family, religious tradition, other artists, your own? Martha, mm -hmm. leaders in society today, where do you draw your principles from? I would have to say, well, if you're turning to this idea that I learned some life lessons from Martha, she fueled my upbringing, what I had learned mm -hmm. as a Midwesterner, an American, through the embodiment of her physical vocabulary and the messages that she chose in her dances. Mm -hmm. It reinforced my upbringing, and it reinforced that I was a powerful individual and that I should fulfill my potential and use it most powerfully. That's quite a message from one woman to another, particularly when you were the age where you were just meeting Martha and she was just discovering you. Yes. And at that point, you mentioned Juilliard earlier. What was the education at Juilliard around ethical principles or even the ethics of dance or how one behaves as an artist, if any? As I've mentioned, I was from the Midwest. I came to New York City at 18. I was the first class in their new building at Lincoln Center. It was kind of a discombobulated time for that dance department in retrospect. They were in a new building and Balanchine was in the same building and you oh, know, right. okay. there's a lot going on. And I was discovering everything from Chinese food to <laughs> uh, Kent State happened while I was in college, the, the peace marches in Columbia University. I was studying life as much as I was studying dance. At New York is quite a place to do that. And New York is quite a place to do that. So when I think of those years, I just think of the, um, wow, how long has this been going on? Not so much about how I was guided as a dancer at Juilliard. How would you say that ethical thinking or ethical choices factor into your own work, specifically how you lead now what is it, a company and a school, how you think about connecting with the audience, mm -hmm. but also your own work over the years as a dancer, um, above and beyond what you've drawn from, from Martha? We really had, the entire organization had to do a 180. We had to go from being sort of goddess-centric Right. to being audience-centric. Without Martha Graham, sort of the mecca that people would just travel and, and come to and fund and buy tickets to, without that draw, we, we became like many other dance companies. And we were more in debt and, <laughs> you know, had, had um, sort of policies and institutional methods that were 75 years old. So we really needed to change the culture of the 
of the organization. So it was a matter of not revering Martha as a woman, as a creative artist, a being, as we had while she was alive, but being able to understand the assets, her legacy, the, its relevance, what it could offer today's audience, today's world, how can we use this artistry, uh, I want to say for good, <laughs> because it's ethics, but not so much for good, but how can we use this, this artistry to have an impact on today's world, today's audiences, today's students, today's funders, today's... Well, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, transformation of organizational culture, mm -hmm. because that's a phrase that comes out a lot when we hear ethical scandals, for example, in banks yes. or in pharmaceutical companies. Right. We're always hearing, or the, the journalists are always writing about, you know, it's a cultural, it's systemic, it's a cultural problem. They need to transform the culture of the corporation. Right. And people don't think about it so much in terms of the arts. But you really had to do that um, in terms of how you run the business, if I could call it that, or the institution, right. as well as the shift, as you say, from the goddess mm -hmm. to the audience. Right. And now we're in this very strange environment where, on the one hand, great artists like yourself and you like the members of your company are increasingly audience-focused, as are the great orchestral conductors and, and others. And yet we're in this selfie, very self-centered, heavily digitalized social media kind of worlds. It's a bit of a, of a contradiction. You know, I, I look at all of that as new ways to move forward, new tools. You have to figure out what it means to this legacy. Is it going to dilute the legacy, or how do we use it without diluting the legacy? Those are the questions. But, you know, Martha was all about the future. She loved new stuff coming at her. She loved to experiment. She, When we would film things for PBS or something, she spent more time behind the camera and in the control booth than she did directing the dancers. Well, you certainly seem to be defining yourself by this link from this exceptional legacy through the present and trying to understand that like we all are mm -hmm. to what whatever's coming next. Mm -hmm. And as you say, forward thinking. Could you maybe address a few more of the ethical challenges specifically of the business? Right. Um, it's, it's a quite a, it is quite a business you're running. You have a number of employees, you have a school, uh, you have funding issues. What are the one or two greatest uh, ethical, ethical challenges you have in running the business? You know, I don't think we've ever been confronted with, you know, a tobacco company wants to fund you. Right. <laughs> Those sorts of decisions. <laughs> right. Of course, day to day, you know, a dancer has gotten injured. Uh, you're going to keep a spot open for him in the company or are you going to... Um, move on and hire somebody else. So very so much on the human side. The human side comes to me as artistic director. Right. Our executive director, I think, probably has many more institutional issues with fundraising and payroll and um, keeping the building going. One of the things that strikes me when I listen to you and when I've um, looked at both the, the pure business side of what you're doing and the artistic side is the word resilience. Mm. And in particular, that almost metaphorically, but it was unfortunately very real, the flood mm -hmm. uh, from Hurricane Sandy. Right. And this image of picking out costumes from the water and, mm -hmm. and looking at the legacy sort of damaged by the water and trying to figure out what's on what floor and what can be saved and, and just the amount of work that is for a small company. Yeah. And it's just what, what comes out to the reader of of articles and history about you all and just seeing and feeling the energy is resilience. Mm -hmm. I hate to keep saying, it goes back to Martha Graham, it goes yeah, back to Martha yeah. Graham, but we're resting on the foundation of 
just being doom eager, as she liked to say, that she had to be creative. She had to move forward and she had to make it work. You know, she wasn't just somebody who said, oh, bring me 10 elephants for my next ballet. Right. She understood that there was a financial practicality and, you know, in her early days she slept in her studio because her apartment was her studio. You no, know, she couldn't afford things, so she was practical. There's some wonderful quote that she says about adversity mm -hmm. and how she will run on a muddy track or something yeah. like that and sort of give her adversity and she'll give you art. That's right. And I think that's, it feels like that's very much alive today still. Absolutely. Can you uh, identify one particular ethical conundrum that you faced in your role as the artistic director here? It could be more on the business side, it could be audience relations, it could be with a particular dancer without even naming names necessarily. One real moment where you said, I, I just, I really am not sure what's, what's true north here. Probably early on when LaRue and I took over, when the, the organization was over five million dollars in debt. I mean, one of the first things I had to do was fire nine dancers when I took over as artistic director. I feel so strongly about the direction, this audience-centric direction that we have taken on. There have n not really been any hair-tearing, middle-of-the-night, should-we-shouldn't-we questions. It was the, the, the company had been so decimated after Martha's death by the intellectual property court case we went through, the terrible debt that we had taken on. There was only one, in my mind, only one thing we could do. It was listening to these studies about audiences and how the audience had changed and what people really wanted and needed from the arts now and how we could provide that. So I guess my north is so strong that I'm, I'm really not having terribly sleepless nights. You mentioned the word listening, and I think um, one of the things that's come up in many of my conversations is the idea that listening is a fundamental to ethical decision-making, to choice. Mm -hmm. That we don't make good choices when we don't listen, all on our own with our, you know, spinning with our own perspective. We don't make good choices. We don't, we don't have perspective. Mm -hmm. And very often we listen to what we want to hear and not to what others are actually telling us. Right. And so the fact that you've gone out and listened uh, and, and read and explored audience surveys and data about what audiences at this particular time, as opposed to in Martha's time, right. need and want and uh, how to engage them is clearly a and really important. And that system actually has part of what has changed the culture in the organization as well. Um, the listening to our faculty, the listening to our students, the listening to the company members. and, and on. In general, it had been very hierarchical in a way, um, and changing over to having to invest in the stakeholders, if you will, to use more corporate language, in the decision making and, and in the um, forward motion of the company. I would like to dispel this image of Martha as sort of this grand woman who just said jump and everybody said how high because right. when she collaborated with Erin Copeland and Isama Noguchi and with the dancers in her company, she entrusted us and, and the generations before me with um, turning this material over with her. She would begin a new work by bringing us big coffee table books and poems and artwork and, and stuff to kind of help us enter into the world that she wanted to evoke in her next work. She entrusted us to contribute to the, the creative process. I think people really think that she knew exactly where every elbow was going to go and was very demanding, and it's just not true. It's actually quite a bit more difficult 
to teach people how to make good choices to use your earlier language mm -hmm. than to tell them exactly what to do to make the choices for them. That's right. What do you think the greatest ethical challenges are that society faces today? Certainly the newspapers, the news, the mainstream media, and social media are rife with some rather terrifying stories, but what really resonates with you is, is just one of the most uh, important ethical challenges. I think reconnecting the world at this point. I mean, separation of communities, of ethnicities, the great disparity of wealth is causing us to wall ourselves off, if you will, and separate from other members of the human race. It's a frightening time in the world just to see that happening again, to, to see that fear is being used to pit one type of person against another. Of course, the arts, I think, is a great bridge for that sort of thing, but so is education and political sense. <laughs> well, political choices and leadership. Exactly. Is there a particular artist or a specific work, and it doesn't have to be in your genre, it can be uh, in any genre, that you feel has made the greatest contribution to ethical thinking or ethical decision making? Any particular work of art? Oh, wow. or Perhaps it's not fair to say the greatest, but one right. of the greatest. One of the greatest. Well, you know, I, I think the work she created when she refused to go to Berlin is um, one of her greatest masterworks. It's a piece called Chronicle. Uh, it's for all women, created in 1936. It's performed in three sections. The first one is called Spectre 1914, and it's reminding the people in the late 30s of the specter of war, of World War I. And the second section is called Steps in the Street, and it, it, these are abstract work. It's, this is 12 women in black dresses. It evokes the devastation that war leaves in its wake. And the final section is called Prelude to Action. The soloist in the first Spectre solo comes back in a white dress and with all these women in black. It's a rallying cry for unity and for people to come together and take action. So, it's, so it really does address your core concern about separation in today's world. That's right. And also, clearly, the specter of war and devastation. And when we see Syria, when we see many other parts of the world today, that's as relevant today, even if it was referring to a particular war. Right. In a particular period Absolutely. of time. Absolutely. It's a timeless work. Yeah. It, because, because of Martha's stripping down to essentials, abstracting um, uh, to the elemental, this How work. prescient to have this with women when we're All seeing women. first U.S. presidential candidate woman, right. we see Theresa May in the U.K., we right. see Angela Merkel, very prescient. Yeah. Now, if you were going to recommend one or two works to today's U.S. political candidates, <laughs> if you were to say, in order to improve your ethical decision-making, Secretary Clinton or Mr. Trump, what would you have them look at or read or listen to or watch? And I think it is fair to say that Mistrust has been one of the leitmotifs of this campaign. Absolutely. And that's why I raise it. Irrespective of one's politics, there have been uh, ethical issues kind of all around. Chronicle is hard, hard to beat. Um, certainly driving Hillary's message home of we're stronger together. You mentioned education earlier. And certainly uh, the arts is facing a challenging time in education. Doesn't matter where in the world. Part of it is for budget reasons. Mm -hmm. Part of it is perhaps because computer science and indeed many of the natural sciences have taken such a step forward uh, in terms of importance or perceived importance to uh, getting jobs, 
to what's most interesting for young people. What do you think is the most important challenge for the arts and education today, and what role should the arts play in education in today's world that is increasingly technologically infused? I don't think the two are mutually exclusive, the technology. I mean, the creativity that now lives on, online is remarkable. Um, everyone has become an artist in a way who's you know, creating YouTube videos and um, on Instagram showing off their photography. Um, it's just opened a whole new way to be creative and steering that and using it is um, an interesting challenge for people who are in education and trying to engage young people. There are many challenges to getting the arts in the schools. Of course, funding is huge. We're just coming out of, in America, we're coming out of this 10 years of No Child Left Behind, when it was all, it was the accountability culture. And we're just beginning to say, well, you know, they just didn't expand their minds as well as they might have, being dictated and, you know, teaching to the test and all of the complaints that everybody has about that accountability. Right. I have hope that um, people are rediscovering the arts and how creativity and the need for creative thinking today is valuable because the jobs that can be done by rote are being taken over by robots. You know, the, the, those jobs are going away. But the jobs that require creativity and artistic inquiry are, are um, proliferating, I think. And perhaps the arts is where the conversation or one of the important places, the conversation that you mentioned earlier about separation and fear mm -hmm. can happen uh, in, in, a, in an unthreatening way and in oh. a way where, as you said at the very beginning of our conversation, uh, different children, different young people at different ages mm -hmm. see across cultural barriers, see across religious barriers, see across the, the political spectrum. Oh, absolutely. So on the subject of technology, I've read that you are particularly interested in how you can use technology and in, in particular with your True North of audience engagement. Mm -hmm. Can you say a little bit about how you're actually using technology for the Martha Graham Dance Company? Well, we've experimented with a number of things. We were the first company in 2008 to stream a rehearsal live. Uh, we streamed a rehearsal of Clytemestra live. I think we're one of the first to create an online video competition Again, with Clytemestra, we... So how did that work? We posted five solos from Clytemestra online, and we challenged people to download them and do anything they wanted to them. The challenge was they had to relate the ancient character. It was Helen of Troy and Cassandra and Electra and Clytemestra. Had to relate the ancient character to someone or something in the news today. Submit their videos, and we had cash prizes. The BBC picked it up. Um, as a story, and we had applicants from Russia and from the Philippines and from Spain, from all over the world. They're still, they still live on so YouTube. So who, who won? I have to go look at these. Uh, a New Yorker won the top prize um, for taking all five characters and doing a faux news broadcast about a dysfunctional royal family and alluding to Princess Diana and the royal family. And so that competition did exactly what your uh, sort of foundation is, which is bridge the legacy to today yeah. and engage the audience directly in a way that they might not otherwise engage with this, I'll be honest, very intimidating. Your, your company is so extraordinarily talented. The works are so sophisticated and thoughtful and there's so much choice and intention mm -hmm. um, that they can be quite intimidating. So that was 
an, uh, another way to, to break down the separation. Yes, and trying to, to find audiences um, and let them know that it, we're not a secret club. Right. You know, the, the marvelous audiences for uh, dance that are being created by the TV shows now, So You Think You Can Dance and Dancing with the Stars, dance on television has had a huge uh, impact. Um, and in looking for a way to let that audience know that, that we're just part of that same thing, passionate and sexy and <laughs> disciplined and athletic, um, we engaged Sonia Taya, who's one of the choreographers for So You Think You Can Dance, to create one of our lamentation variations. I don't know if you've run yes, across of what our lamentation variations are. Um, and uh, these are short pieces we ask contemporary choreographers to create, inspired by Martha Graham dancing her famous solo lamentation. And when Sonia announced on So You Think You Can Dance that she was going to be working with the Martha Graham Dance Company, it crashed our website. So finding ways to say, you out there, right? <laughs> just come and check us out. Well, and So You Think You Can Dance and all of these um, television shows they very much work through celebrity. Somebody's going to tune into them because they want to see a famous tennis player, they want to see a famous actor, or even somebody who's famous for being famous, as the yes. saying goes, to dance. So for you to be able to plug into that. Well, that's particularly true of Dancing with the Stars. Right. But So You Think You Can Dance just has some amazing dancers on it and some of today's top choreographers who quickly uh, choreograph these two-minute things. And it's, it's just a culture of, and, and audiences get to see what's required of a dancer. They, they understand there are standards. They're, they're, you know, they're, the bar is very high, and it's difficult, and it takes practice. You see these dancers in rehearsal sessions, and you know, all of those things are also true of us. And, and here's the TV show letting audiences know what our work is. So yes, we're looking for ways to uh, connect. That's wonderful for the connection, but it is also wonderful, for t particularly for young audiences, to uh, understand. I believe you said at one point, you know, practice, 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 mm -hmm. and the hard work, and in the case of dancers, the physical hard work that goes into any art is something that sometimes gets lost in this world where Instagram is a click, right. and a, you know, and a posting, or all of it can happen in literally ten seconds. Somehow, sometimes the notion of the hard work that it is to be a great photographer mm -hmm. or to be a great dancer can get lost. I wanted to say one other thing about our, sure. our efforts in new technology because we do have a new partnership with Google. And along with what the dance company is doing, we also have archives that span 90 years now. And we're partnering with Google. We're on their new Google Arts and Culture uh, website with exhibits where you can see some of our archival photos and film clips and learn a little bit about the company and about Martha Graham and giving people an, uh, another way to find out about us. Well, and I think Google's extraordinary for access, uh, speaking of ethics, mm -hmm. and also for preservation yeah. of the great work. So that's a wonderful partnership. How should the arts try to influence science and technology? I mean, you use it, you deploy it. We've talked about you partner with Google, but how should you actually try to influence where science and technology is going? You know, I mean, I know there's an answer about reminding scientists that humanity needs to chart a course together and an ethical course and uh, do we really want to clone babies and things. Right. I, I know that that's a, a question, but I'm also very interested in the commonality of, between creative thinking in science and in the arts. and. 
how ideas are created, how, how they come to being, because I think that there's this perception that there's a great separation between what scientists do and what artists do, and I don't believe that exists. One way to help the ethical question about babies being cloned or whatever right. is, is to make sure that the thought process of a collaborative, of um, creative thinking that takes into account the human element as artists do and make sure that scientists are also using that human element, uh, those ideas. And that's, uh, it's also about problem solving. It mm -hmm. takes many perspectives and many different talents and skill sets and many lenses through which we look at a problem in Absolutely. order to come to... The cross-pollinization, one study I read about scientists stumbling on a new solution was that they had been at a conference with scientists from other areas. You know, the, the neuroscientists had been with the biologists and, the, you know, they had not been talking about this particular problem, but there was some kind of cross-pollinization that allowed, you know, new ways of looking at what they were trying to find. And there are examples of that even with architecture where one of the challenges of an architect will be, for example, to design a building in which scientists from different specialty areas will randomly bump into each other. Uh -huh. Because uh -huh. there's a lot of research about just, you know, randomly having a chemist and a physicist bump into each other over coffee and having spaces where that happens as right. opposed to silos right. greatly improves the, the scientific creativity or the idea generation, as, as you mentioned. The, the signature theater up on 42nd Street, when, when I think Frank Gehry designed that building for them, they got rid of their loading dock door in the back and everything goes through the front entrance so that the technical crew, the actors, the actresses, the scenery, everything has to go through the public area where the audience uh, can sit and have coffee and you know mm -hmm. so it, it sort of embodies in a building way that need to for everyone to uh, be part of the same idea. Well I think actually we we see that this is a very forward-looking company mm -hmm. very forward-looking artistic director Thank so you. I think we all look forward very much to seeing what you're going to do next. We, we've sort of developed this way of, of moving the legacy forward by letting it be a launch pad for future, the future projects, whether it's with new technology or whether it's choreography or whether it's with educational lesson plans. We found that the Graham legacy is very fertile and rich and is allowing us to go in a lot of different directions. And you're taking it in a lot of different directions. I hope so. Um, Janet, thank you so much. It's truly been an honor. Thank you. Really appreciate your time.